0: Genesis 45, we've been telling the story of Joseph. And in this incredible story of Joseph and his brothers, I years ago, though I didn't take time to teach it, I years ago, it's one of those biblical stories that you just one day the lights come on, the fire turns on, and you read it in a way you haven't read it before. And these are ink marks from years ago. I know I've I've told you, I know they're from years ago because I can no longer read what I wrote in the margin. And it's not because it's hieroglyphics, it's because my eyes aren't the same. So I had to literally get out readers for the first time to see what I'd written here. But in the story of Joseph and his brothers, a story that spans specifically, as I'm telling it, 22 years. Uh, At 17, this kid was almost murdered by his 10 older brothers. The story is clearly set up as he was the favored child, his brothers were jealous of him, he was a spiritually gifted child, and He was desperately hated by his brothers and they sought to kill him. Instead of killing him, they decided to redeem him for money and they sold him into slavery. It's just, it's an ancient story. This story is not exclusively specific to the Judeo-Christian text. This story in almost every major world religion. I found at least six other major religions that developed in this era who share this story. Um, or at least some semblance of this story, a cognate of this story. It is a piece of wisdom literature that has survived as best we can tell for 3,800 years. You know, if you write a book and it's relevant for five years, you've really done something. To write a story and for that story to pervade for it to arise without cross-pollination in the hearts of people in the Americas, in what we now call Mongolia, Siberia, in the Indus Valley, north of India and Pakistan. For this story to develop without cross-pollination means that this story did not develop in individual history, it developed in a corporate history of soul. This story exists in the soul of human beings. It's a story of betrayal It's a story of betrayal by those closest to you, and it's a story of wrestling through that betrayal, wrestling through the possibilities of resentment and bitterness and estrangement and separation, and ultimately a story that in all of its iterations ends up in restoration of relationship, but even more than restoration of relationship, it ends up as a story of transformation of individual souls. What is at stake here is not just the relationship between those who are estranged, those who have hurt and been hurt. What ends up happening here is, in their own individual souls, their lives are transformed by this experience. It's just a profound story. 17 years old, put in the back of a slave cart, as he rolls off, at the hands of these Midianite slave traders, he watches his brothers divide up 20 pieces of silver. And he has to fathom that these young men that he's lived his life with, that he's looked up to, value him as worth no more than two small pieces of silver. He is sold into slavery. Nine years he spends in Potiphar's house. In that place, he is elevated. He becomes the chief steward of Potiphar's house. It's as good as a slave can get it. And then he's betrayed again by Potiphar's wife. She tries to seduce him again and again. He refuses her overtures. And eventually, she is so angry at him that she cries rape. And Potiphar can do nothing else except believe his wife in this case, and Joseph now spirals down into prison. He's 26 at this point. From 26 to 30, he spends four years in prison. And I don't know what an Egyptian prison would have been like uh, in, you know, 35 to 3600 years ago, but you can imagine the conditions were not good. And while he's in prison, he again climbs the ranks and becomes the chief Uh, the chief um, orderly uh, in prison, and he's trusted by the prison officials. And then through a series of kind of metaphysical circumstances, uh, he is found out in the prison to be a clairvoyant and intuitive, um, whatever you call it, some people call them psychics. Uh, In the Pentecostal church I grew up in, we called it word of wisdom, word of knowledge. It's amazing How we know there are people among us who are intuitives, who are seers, who have acute nerve endings of soul. And it's amazing that every religion has names for that, whether it's shamans or prophets. We all have names for them, but we all want our religion to be the only one that has the capacity for that kind of thing. And anybody else who experiences that are experiencing black magic and bad stuff. And and yet, they're all doing the same thing. We just recognize there are some people among us who are seers. And like I just said, they just, their five senses are acute at a level that most aren't. And they see things, and they put things together, and Joseph was that kid. He had this uncanny ability to interpret dreams, and long story short, it got him out of jail not only got him out of jail, but now at 30 years old, he goes through the whirlwind, the whiplash of emotion, of being elevated quickly because of his supernal gift, of being elevated to literally the vice-Pharaoh position of all of Egypt. And from 30 to 37, he commandeers the Egyptian harvest because Pharaoh has dreamed dreams that Joseph has interpreted that means that That from Joseph's 30th through 37th year, those seven years are going to be a year of bounty and harvest, and then they're going to be followed by seven years of famine. So for seven years, he accumulates, and he governs, and he administrates this bountiful harvest, and they silo the grain, preparing for the seven years of famine that's coming. And at the end of that seven years, the famine indeed hits. It hits beyond Egypt, it extends down into Africa, it goes up into the Levant, maybe even to what we now know as Europe. The entire region is hit. And not only is Egypt a storehouse for Egyptian people, but the bountiful harvest was such that that even people from neighboring contiguous countries and lands can come down. And in a uncanny set of events, When he is 39 years old, two years into the time of blight and drought, at 39, 22 years removed from the betrayal and the pit, he is sitting in his position as vice chancellor, overseeing the distribution, and 10 men walk in his door, and immediately he recognizes them. They are the brothers who betrayed him 22 years earlier. What a story. And they are not there to make amends. They have no idea that this is their younger brother. They are there with their hat in their hands requesting food. And he literally has their lives in his hand now. Not just their lives, but they had about 70 children and grandchildren and wives and grandparents back home in Palestine. So these 10 men are representing 70 people, and he is sitting there, looking through Pharaoh's makeup and regalia, knowing that they don't know him. And over the next several chapters, from chapter 42 to 44, he puts them through a series of events that absolutely looks like he's shooting bullets at their feet to watch them dance. He sends them back home after imprisoning them a little while. He puts them all in prison, tells them he's not going to give them grain, their family's going to starve. It feels like he's toying with their psyches and then one day he comes to the jail and he says, I'm going to let you all go but I'm going to keep one of you. He lets them all go. He orders his people to put their money back in their sacks of grain so that when they get on down the road and they open the sacks of grain, they'll see the money there and they will be fearful that he will believe that they have stolen it. He's just, he's what we used to call, he's just jacking with them. He's messing with them. That's what it feels like. Eventually they come back for more grain and they bring their younger brother, Benjamin, and their father is deeply grieved because Benjamin is Joseph's full brother, and the father, Jacob, 22 years before, lost his favorite child, Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin, you see, were the children of his favorite wife, Rachel. That's the deal. And here's here's a a a shout out against polyamory lives. They never have worked, and I don't think our anthropology is headed that way. I think we are coupling people who look for a soulmate to live life with, and all of the exploration into non-monogamous relationships, I think anthropology, past and future, will show that's just not our way of being in the world. And every moment in scripture where it is elucidated, it creates tensions among the children and the spouses that just are undue. So there's a little aside about polyamory. How about that? You didn't expect that this morning. but. <clears throat> Benjamin comes down. Long story short, Jacob's heart breaks because he thinks he's gonna lose another of his favored children. Parents shouldn't even have favored children, but he did, and it creates all of this tension. And I just wanted to read the story through on this last week that I'll be dealing with this and just show you a few of the points that have stood out to me over the years that have literally become ingrained into my soul, and I don't look for them simply historically in an old allegory or an ancient Cohen, but I look for them in my life every day as I relate to people, as I find my way through my own offenses and offendings, and I try to work out my relationship, not only with others, but with my own soul in moments of hurt. If the moment comes down Joseph is there, unrevealed to his brothers. The series of circumstances have worn them out. They are reamed out psychologically. They are broken men. And you think to yourself as you're reading the story, man, he has really done it. He has gotten them. And now he's gonna break them. They are the bruised reeds and they are about to break. They are the smoking flax and he's about to snuff them out. And they're standing before him broken this final time And he says, I'm gonna let you all go, but I'm gonna keep that kid brother. And they break. They literally psychologically break and they begin to grieve and cry. And one by one, they stand up and say, please no. Please no. Judah literally steps forward as their spokesperson and said, you can keep any of us. Keep me, kill me. But do not do this to our father. Do not take another favored child of Rachel from him. And at that moment, remember, and I said this a few weeks ago, at that moment, Joseph faces a reality that I think he longed to believe, or maybe he didn't. Maybe it's the exact opposite of what he wanted to believe. There are times people hurt you and they hurt you deep enough that you almost don't want them to get better. You almost don't want them. It, it almost They have hurt you so deeply that you want to hold them in that place. And the thought of them growing and being apologetic is more than you can take. And, and, and that's a possibility for Joseph, but I don't think it's the truth. Because when that final brother stepped out and said, we have an old dad who years ago lost a son unfairly, and he can't take another one, and before we will let that happen, with the guilt of that first son on their shoulders, the story, they didn't feel any need to tell the story. Why would they think they needed to tell the story? They didn't know they were talking to Joseph. But at that moment when he saw and, and don't miss what he clearly saw. He saw that over the last 22 years, not only has his, has had his life changed, but over the last 22 years, these men who had desperately hurt him, their lives had also changed. They were standing here today as different men and it hit him. Down in that pit, down in that prison, down in that slavery, God had done a work in my soul. Simultaneously, in their own prisons as the offenders over the last 22 years, God showed no favorites. He did a work in their soul as well. And there's that moment of, I, I don't want God to work in my enemy's life, right? I don't want God to work there and yet there's this reality these are changed men and these are the things that have stood out for me as he recognized this and I'll just read through them now the last verse of Genesis 44 when the last brother looked at him and said for how shall I go up to my father if the lad Benjamin is not with me lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I covered that a couple of weeks ago. One of the ways that you know that you have forgiven is when you reduce the story and you reduce the exposure to just those who have hurt you or have been hurt by you. Joseph was there with his brothers and there was a lot of people in the room that the story was not germane to. And he looked at them, David, and he said, get out, this has nothing to do with you. Forgiveness in the heart of a person is seeking to send away and reduce harm, not expose it and exaggerate it. You remember the writer of Proverbs and the writer of Psalms wisely said from the same wisdom era and body of literature that love covers a multitude of sins, but hatred stirs up strife. So you have an event and and the question is, is this event to be reduced or is this event to be exaggerated? And Joseph was standing there with people that he had spent the last nine years working with in close proximity, intimately connected to these Egyptian rulers and leaders and administrators. And Joseph looks at people that he has a deep and intimate life with. 22 years in Egypt, he hasn't seen these brothers. So he has reason to say to his friends around him, you're not going to believe this story. You're not going to believe who these jokers are and who I am. Sit down, you gotta hear this. Because inquiring minds like to know. And Joseph had that moment where he could have said as the offended one, you gotta hear this. But instead he looked around at 22 years of life And he said, get out, this has nothing to do with you. Forgiveness reduces exposure. It does not exaggerate shame. Verse two, he he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh outside of the room heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? I don't have to repeat here, but let me remind you this is one of my favorite points. You know you have forgiven when the issue does not dominate your psyche and your conversation and your thought. He could have looked at them and said, I am Joseph and man have I been waiting for this moment. But the work of forgiveness does not require the other person to be in your presence. The work of forgiveness does not require the other person to be party. The work of forgiveness is something that happens in you. And one of the ways that we can tell Joseph has forgiven and released them. Remember, forgiveness is the release of the debt and the release of any sense of wanting to punish, to extend the pain and to reciprocate the pain. It's when you let go. You may not trust them, the relationship may not be fully restored, but you are at least letting go of the desire to punish and reciprocate pain. And Joseph looks at them and says, I am Joseph, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, And I don't know that he could have predicted what he said, and he may have even been surprised at the work that had happened in his own heart. Because coming tumbling out of his mouth were these words, I am Joseph, is dad still alive? You know you're forgiven when the issues of hurt have subsided and become subordinate, and there are other more important issues in life that are central. I am Joseph, does my father still live?" But his brothers could not answer him. Stunned, (laughs) 22 years, they did not know what had happened to this boy. And they're standing there, staggered, punch drunk, and they could not answer him. Out of the 10 of them, Benjamin in tow, They could not answer him, and listen to this, one of the ways that perhaps we can begin to see that they indeed were changed men as well, they could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. Let's think about that for a minute. They were dismayed in his presence. They were so uncomfortable in the presence of this man because they knew what they had done to him. And now they were here and they were vulnerable and they were prone. If there were a moment that his bitterness and his vindictiveness, his sense of retribution could have actualized to the fullest, most broken extent, it was this moment because they're standing there shaking, unable to say anything. And he has the people who have hurt him at their most vulnerable selves. And instead of shooting out their feet to watch them with the most ridiculous lack of equilibrium, dance and sputter and stammer, Darren, he looked at them and had compassion for their dismayed sense. His immediate response to their dismay was not to lean in with a smile and watch them. To take this moment and even passively just set a space where they can do nothing else, Aaron, except just grovel. But as he's watching them collapse down into this dismay, Joseph said to his brothers, Please. He softens. Twenty-two years. Four years in a prison cell. Nine years in slavery. Twenty-two years of separation from his mother and father. And as the people who are the culprits are shaking in their boots, he immediately leans toward them with softness and says, please come near to me. Counterintuitive to everything they would think they would want to do, he looks at them, holds out his arms and says, please come near to me. And something about the tone of his voice the text says so they came near which tells me he did not say get over here but it was please don't be afraid joseph is a type of jesus jesus a type of god and joseph begins early in the hebrew scriptures scriptures that are littered with much horror and terror as we project our own vitriol our own stuff onto God. Joseph very early is one of those texts that show us the softer side of God, representative of God. There is this, there is this longing. It's it's the same voice that was in the garden when Adam and Eve heard the footsteps of God and they hid behind the bushes and the voice of God calls them out. And so we know that the voice of God wasn't, Adam, Eve, get out here. But the voice was, Adam, Eve, son, daughter, Where are you? And those who were hiding lifted up. Drawn by the voice, the tone, they lifted up and they said, we're here. Why are you hiding? We're naked. Joseph is in one of those moments with his brothers. They are dismayed in his presence. And Joseph, proof positive you have forgiven someone is when you no longer want them dismayed in your presence. Drew, I have had those moments where there was a pseudo-forgiveness, but I still subconsciously like the fact that they were a little unsettled around me. You like the fact that there's still a bit of an uneven ground. And you don't have to admit it, it's not even conscious, it's not at the surface of the economy of your relationship, but Lee, you know down under, they know that you know that they know that you know. And, and it's it's one of those forgivenesses where you look at them and you say, you owe me a big debt, you don't have to pay it, but Mandy, you don't really mean you don't have to pay it. What you mean is you don't have to pay me immediately in full today, but I'm gonna set up in our relationship a high interest amortization of this wound and we're going to amortize this long term in our relationship and there's never going to be a moment you have to pay the full principal but you're going to pay me these little weekly, monthly high interest payments of just unsettled dismay for you know and I know who's on top who was wrong and who was right. You know you've forgiven someone when you do not want them dismayed in your presence. And when you see their dismay and you, in your heart, hurt for them and you look at them and you say, please no. No payments. I remember speaking personally from my life, I remember an elderly couple in my life, in my family, who for years, I never understood the dynamic between them because they were both saints and they were both an important part of my life and they were both the most beautiful of souls to other people. Steve, they just were the most beautiful. And, And yet the dynamic between these two incredible aged octogenarian saints was that in their beauty to everybody else, he was always also extraordinarily kind to her, but whenever she spoke to him, she would snap at him, always. There was an edge. And I could, David, I never could figure out how this incredible woman who was the sweetest to everyone was so sharp to this guy, this old man who was so sweet to her. And it was always a strange dynamic. After they passed in the economy of our family, I finally found out that many years before he had been unfaithful to her. And that's an odd thing when you find out you know, in retrospect as an adult, something you didn't know as a child, and this family, this perfect family that you had, you begin to find out that none of us are really sturdy oak trees. Our family trees are like kudzu. They kind of weave in and out of themselves, and they're very broken. And I remember when I found that out, I remember it immediately dawned on me the dynamic of their relationship. My... Granddad, my granddad had actually intervened in that couple's life. And my granddad was there at the moment that the woman stood with a... (laughs) My... My granddad was a young man. He said, I walked into the room and she was standing there and they were staring at one another. The affair had been revealed and she had a hammer in her hand gripping it. This saintly woman and tears, no squinching of the face, just tears. Pain, liquid pain and betrayal. And he was standing there ready to get hit by the hammer and not defend himself. And my granddad said, he." reached her hand and said, you don't want to do that, mom. And she let go of the hammer, but she never let go of the pain. And it was shortly after that, that my brothers and sister and I were born, and we lived in that world for a quarter of a century, never understanding that dynamic the dynamic of dismay between two people who loved one another, and yet he could never repay her the billion dollars that he owed her. And when she said she forgave him and let go of the hammer, the reality is she didn't know how. And at 23.9% monthly amortization, in every request for a cup of tea, every time the house was a little too warm, every time things didn't work out or he didn't turn right when they were driving to the right place, taken out of his hide was a bit more of dismay. So we have to be really careful that when we offer someone forgiveness, we're not saying you don't have to pay it all immediately in full today. But what we're going to do is set up this unstated system, this amortization of no mercy, this long payment plan where ultimately you end up paying back three times the amount of principal and are no closer to being debt-free. This is a profound moment that Joseph has because he could have looked at his brothers and he could have set up this debiture of extended payment and he could have said okay here's what I'm gonna do I'm not gonna kill you I'm not gonna make you pay it back I forgive you but let's keep this dynamic between us Joseph said to his brothers please come near to me so they came near and he said I am Joseph your brother whom you sold into Egypt Forgiveness does not mean that you deny the event. Forgiveness is not an unhealthy codependence where we are forced back into abusive relationships to prove how holy we are. Forgiveness is no denial of the event. He brought them close and he said it happened. I am Joseph. You did this to me. Forgiveness does not deny the event. Joseph said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt, but now. Forgiveness makes a decision to conjunct life from the past to the present. It does not do it with denial. It owns the wound. I am Joseph who you sold into Egypt. There is no denying it. You are the less if you deny it. I am the less if I deny it. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Do you hear that? He literally looked at them and said, Not only, for forgiveness to be full, Jennifer, for forgiveness to be full, he said, not only am I releasing you from the debt, I want you to do the same. I want you to let it go. My relationship is not gonna be such with you that I'm going to be the big one who releases the debt, but I enjoy watching you beat the hell out of yourself the rest of your life. Stephen, he looked at them and said, I want you to do what I've done let this go. If I can let it go and it was done to me, then you can let it go. Joseph understood that in the economy of our psyches, sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. And Joseph looked at them and said, here's what I want for you. Glenn, he looked at them and said, here's what I want for you as a forgiver. I want you to forgive yourself. I want you to let this go. And I I don't want you to ever think about it again. Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. And as they're struggling for the reason why, he said, because. And Steve, you'd think he had read Richard Rohr's, Everything Belongs, that I often have wanted to subtitle, Nothing Is Wasted. He looks at them and says, here's why, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now listen, this is not a technical statement about how exactly God works. I don't know about the predestination thing. I don't know about how that all sets up. I don't know about freeness of will. All of that stuff that I used to figure out and have been on every side of the equation, I don't know anymore. All I know is I feel like there is a grain to this universe. I feel like there are trade winds and currents in this universe, and while I feel like I am making decisions, I do feel like, Aaron, there is a sovereignty and a providence of love and grace so much bigger that if I will give myself to it, I almost cannot lose for winning. Because there is a goodness of grace that superintendents, super superintends and it redeems. And I know back 2,000, 3,000 years ago, people wrestled with whether there was this big God and we were marionettes, or whether there was this cosmic war and, you know, we had free will and we could disappoint God and God could be broken and the whole thing wouldn't end up or it's all going to end up just right because God has micromanaged the whole. I don't know any of that stuff anymore. I do feel very large. I do feel like whatever God is, God has made me a part of that and I feel like I have a lot of autonomy and will. And I also feel with everything I do and everything I try that there is a sustaining wind and current under that that is bigger than me. And that's what he said to them. He said, I want you to listen to me. The reason that I let it go and you can let it go is because, you read the rest of the story yourself, he said, because I figured out in spite of the terrible vehicle of your sins against me, there was this superintending providence that actually got me here. Now listen to this, this is the way he closes it. He said, God sent me through your acts to Egypt to preserve a posterity of life, listen to this, for you. He said, the longer I was down here, when I first saw your faces, it hit me. That you're human beings too. That you have children and grandchildren who love you too. That you're children of God too. And nothing you could ever do would undo that. And it began to occur to me that not only had God gotten me to Egypt to preserve life for myself and others, When you stood before me, it occurred to me that God brought me here to preserve your children and grandchildren's life." And he said, I got to thinking, if God loved y'all that much, how could I not? We're all a piece of one another. No wonder a later Joseph would say, the quicker you learn to love your enemies, you will learn with Thich Han, the great Buddhist teacher, that when you love them, they are no longer your enemy. And it is through love and forgiveness and the understanding that everything belongs and nothing's wasted and the worst thing that's ever happened to you may actually end up being the best thing that's ever happened to you. And not only might it be the best thing that's ever happened to you, it might even be the best thing that ever happened to the person who did it to you. And by the end, I don't know if we're going to really figure out which person in the Trinity Jesus was and what the afterlife really looks like and all the fancy theologies we've wasted the first 2,000 years of Christianity talking about. But in the end, I think we're going to understand we were inseparably, irrevocably a part of one another. And when we hurt others, we hurt ourselves maybe more deeply than we even hurt them. And when they hurt us, they were hurting themselves worse than they were hurting us. And the quicker we come to that place. The last thing Joseph said was, I'm gonna send you back to dad now. And when you get back to dad, I want you to tell him about all the prosperity of my life these last 22 years. (laughs) Oh man. You know you're forgiven when you want the story to die. You know you're forgiven when the story is rewritten in your mind, and you haven't rewritten history, but you've rewritten with grace. Joseph looked back at 22 years and he said, I gotta stay here and do my job, but you go back and get dad. And they said, what are we gonna tell him? He said, you tell him, that I'm doing just fine, it's been a wonderful 22 years. And they said, you mean we don't have to tell him? He said, tell him what? Let it go, brothers. No need to put all that on dad. Tell him I got two little boys named Manasseh and Ephraim that look a lot like him and have Rachel's eyes. You know you're forgiven when the story is rewritten with grace. Years later in the 50th chapter of this book, Jacob dies, and as the father dies, years after this forgiving event, the brothers come to Joseph and they tell him a long lie about the fact that they were with their father, and when he was dying in his last breath, he said, for us to tell you, Joseph, to be good to us and don't hurt us because of what we did years ago, it was all a lie. They thought when Jacob died that the other foot was going to fall and Joseph really hadn't forgiven. And so they made up this big story about this deathbed thing. And when they're telling Joseph the story, trying to secure their lives, the Bible said Joseph looks at them, knows they're lying. And instead of saying, shut up, I've got you now, the Bible said he just started weeping because it hit him for the last seven years. His brothers had not really believed he had forgiven them and it broke his heart. And he looked at them and said, for seven years you've been living like paupers. You didn't believe me. Maybe with dad gone you will believe me now. I really have forgiven. Let yourselves up, boys. Let yourselves up. That's a 3,800-year-old story. Do you realize why Native Americans and Proto-Mongolians and people from the Indus Valley were telling this story, because this story isn't about one man and 10 brothers. This story is about all of us. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads and close and just sit and comply for a moment. And I suppose the good question would be for us just to spend 60 to 90 seconds meditating on before we go is, so what? So what, where does this filter down into the sociology, the structures and systems and relationships of my life and my own soul? Spirit of God, help us now to release, to release retribution, vengeance, bitterness, pain, to release the desire to punish, to let go of the hammers in our hand, especially help us to release those hammers with which we beat ourselves, self-recrimination, self-punishment, self-loathing. Whatever part of us is Joseph needs to let go of the offense of the other, give us strength now. For that, surely you have. Whatever part of us is still the brothers, the self-recrimination, May we come near to the presence of forgiveness and love. May we let ourselves up now. And may we realize how unbelievably enmeshed we are, entangled and ensnarled. And how beautifully the complex dynamics of our relationships could literally unfurl if we learn to forgive may love be our guide, may forgiveness be our rule and may we go from this place being good to one another and ourselves, we pray all of this in the name of one who forgave well in the name of Jesus Christ, and God's people said Amen, isn't that lovely? Let's go do good together.